Hi, everyone. This is Martin Willis, and welcome to the Antique Auction Forum for episode number 111 with John Rinaldi on Whaling Scrimshaw. A couple of announcements. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash auction underscore podcast. You can like us on Facebook, and that icon is right on our website, which is antiqueauctionforum.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes or some other podcast site, please do leave us a review. Your comments are welcome on any podcast. There is a comments form underneath each of them. And if you'd like to give us feedback on our show or any show ideas or guest ideas, please feel free to email me at info at Today we have a great informational show, and I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. This is Martin Willis, and I'm in Kennebunkport with John Rinaldi. How are you doing, John? Good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for meeting with me. And we met, I think it was in the 90s sometime, and uh, I saw right away you had a lot of knowledge in uh, scrimshaw and things like that. You've been at it for how long? Uh, started in 1972, so so quite a while. Wow. Yeah. So were you, you were pretty young then. How did you get uh, started uh, in that? Uh, well, when I started living in Kennebunkport, I got a little. I got quite interested in the history of the. It's such a shipbuilding history here in town mm. that I kind of got interested in that, and um, and with that came you know interest in all the different artifacts that were related to ships and shipping and whatnot, and it just uh, became a something I got very uh, involved with and then started to buy and sell things and, uh, and putting out little catalogs and, uh, and hmm. I'm still at it. So Wow. Yeah. And so where did you come from ahead of before? Uh, I grew up in Connecticut, uh-huh. in a very industrial city in Connecticut called Waterbury. Oh, yeah. 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 How long would you say that you started collecting and selling scrimshaw teeth? Was that one of the first things you... Yeah, I got involved with it uh, right away. It was uh, right about the time uh, Norm Flaterman wrote his book, oh, yeah. uh, Scrimshaw and Scrimshanders. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a lot of, you know, it really uh, kindled up some interest in Scrimshaw, and I got interested as a result. And the book was kind of the Bible and still kind of is the Bible of, of the business, although a new one just was uh, produced by the New Bedford Whaling Museum, which is wonderful. Um, and so I just, um, I really liked it. I loved the history of whaling and what an important industry it was in, a, mm. in 19th century America. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I got involved in interest, not just in the scrimshaw aspect of it, but the implements and tools and, uh, items that they used, um, you know, harpoons and whale guns and just, um, all the different mm. aspects of whaling, uh, I found very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Now I was at an auction Oh, I would say 10 or 15 years ago. And I believe one of those books went at the auction for quite a bit of money. Uh, Oh, that's, uh, he did, uh, Norm did a very limited edition of, I think it was going to be 150. He never did them all. I think he only did about 50 or 60 of them. Mm -hmm. But it was a very special bound edition that had a whalebone plaque uh, with a um, raised sperm whale on it. Um, that was scrimshawed with the name of the book. So, it, you know, it was a real high-end book, and that's why it brought the money. But mm. the regular edition of it, you know, is around $300 still. Yeah. You know, it's been out of print a long time, but mm-hmm. uh, you can find copies around $300. Mm-hmm. Now, when did uh, 
we're going to talk about other subjects besides scrimshaw, but when did the first known uh, scrim shander start making uh, scrimshaw? Um, I guess um, the first one that we really know would be the American scrim shander named, a uh, whaleman named Edward Burdett. And mm-hmm. um, he... Uh, he dates back into the 1820s, and then there was uh, Frederick Myrick who did these famous Susan's teeth. Yes, yeah. and those all date from a voyage around 1828-29 in that range. Mm-hmm. So those are about you know two of the earliest known artisans um, of scrimshaw, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and both were Americans. Yeah. yeah. Now the the Susan's teeth are the record holders for scrimshaw, aren't they? No, there was a um, the record I think for a tooth was uh, at Northeast Auctions um, about four or five years ago, and it wasn't a Susan's tooth. Um, it was another large tooth by um, I think they call it refer to him as the albatross artisan or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was just a fabulous big tooth with wonderful scenes on it and whatnot and uh, i mean that was the go-go days back then and it Mm -hmm. ended up i think with the premium being over three hundred thousand dollars um susan's teeth i mean you know they can there's a lot of them actually there's well into the 20s of them that are documented and Mm -hmm. uh, but they still command good ones command uh probably around upwards around 200 grand now Mm -hmm. for the novice or someone that doesn't really know what we're talking about can you kind of explain what the process was, what the sailor did, and all that from beginning to end? Um, I, I, you know, I don't. The funny thing is, is I, you, no one really ever wrote down the process, oh, um, really? yeah. so to speak. So there's just uh-huh. references to it. But apparently, you know, somehow they bartered for you know parts of you know teeth or bones or mm-hmm. whatever, um, you know, of the of the whale and different artisan, you know, after it was captured and then during their leisure time. Uh, which there was lots of it. Yeah. These voyages were three and four years long. Um, they would make objects, absolutely wonderful objects, mm. you know, out of it, you know, walking sticks and, you know, elaborately carved, you know, inlaid boxes or, or engraved teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, it, you know, we suspect obviously a guy like Myrick at the Susan's Teeth probably was good at what he did, and so other people on the vessel gave them their tooth and said, do one for me, you know, mm. or whatever, because he was good at it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we don't know, but that's just speculation. Why would one guy do 29 or 30 teeth, you know, just for himself? So you kind of got to think that he was maybe executing the work for other people on board because he was good, um, you know, which is typical. I mean, you know, you don't, you know, to put a painting in your house, you don't take out mm. a canvas and start painting it and saying. <laughs> You know, you go buy one from somebody that's good, you know, yeah. and uh, and hang it up. Um, but, uh, you know, the process, I mean, we, you know, they smooth the teeth when they come out of the jar or, or rough, and they were smooth, nice and smooth and prepared for engraving. Do you know how they would do that? Uh, with a they, knife or something? Well, I think probably they took some of the heavy stuff off with a knife, and then the final part was probably sanded with, like, shark, shark skin or some oh. rough material mm-hmm. and, and then polished in some way. Probably mm-hmm. everybody had their own little technique or something to do it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they went through the process of engraving the uh, tooth with a seam. Um, a lot of times they copied uh, a lot of the stuff out of books and um, and publications mm. of the time, like Harper's and uh, mm. um, different things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. There were books on uh, uh, called the Naval Monument, which had a lot of um, scenes of battles in them, different mm. War of eighteen twelve battles, especially, and a lot of those were a lot of teeth 
have those scenes directly copied onto them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of research being done on connecting these, um, you know, they copied scenes off of sheet music and, you know, mm-hmm. just wherever they could, you know, things mm-hmm. that they could copy. Um, and then they had different processes. Nobody's really exactly sure how they inked or colored the engraved lines, mm-hmm. but um, uh, some combination of some sort of shipboard materials. And then some of them did them with polychrome coloring, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, those were inks that they had or paints or something, you know. But I don't think anybody really knows the exact formula. Again, yeah. it was something that never really was written down, you know. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to. Uh imagine exactly it was done with like a needle or some sharp object yeah pop a and then, knife or a needle or something yeah. yeah and then you couldn't you wouldn't really see what you engraved until it was colored so that must have been a really yeah i mean difficult. i i often thought you know perhaps maybe they colored the surface of the tooth black when they started you know oh, and then yeah. engraved and then you saw the white but i've talked to modern day scrimshanders and they say they don't they say they can see it just fine as oh. they engrave their way through mm-hmm. so they do work on the you know with it just tooth in the white form so are there any modern day scrimshanders that are noted for their work um, I'm sure there are i don't really follow that market very yeah. much i'm strictly really only involved in 19th century Mm-hmm. work so um i'm sure there's some very good ones mm-hmm. um there were a few that were talked about at the last scrimshaw symposium um a couple guys from massachusetts and uh that are apparently good but again i don't follow that market yeah. it's nothing i handle uh, right you know. and uh, i've seen this myself and we can of course i always like to talk about fakes and things like that in these podcasts but i've seen myself where someone has taken a period tooth and and scrimshot it recently uh, i don't know if you'd consider that a fake or not but um you can tell it's very fresh well it's it absolutely is a fake if it's done to look like it's 19th century work yeah um now if someone takes an old tooth and puts work on it that's clearly modern Mm -hmm. and you know acknowledges it then it's fine. Then it's contemporary scrimshaw. Yeah. But one of the trickiest parts in the business is when someone finds a tooth that was polished in the 19th century, which they show mm-hmm. up once in a while. They're not, you know, really common because I think, you know, but I think sometimes people polished them and just kept the tooth as a curiosity and mm-hmm. never engraved it. Well, if someone gets a hold of one of those, it has all natural patina and age yeah. color on it. And, you know, and since someone is clever enough to be able to put work on it that really looks like in the 19th century, you know, um, feel, mm-hmm. um, that's a tricky one, even for the best eyes. Yeah. So, um, but that doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's seldom because it's, number one, hard to find the teeth. Number two, it's hard to put the work on there to look the way it would have yeah. looked through the eyes of a 19th century uh, mm-hmm. person you know a whaleman or whoever was engraving it so but it is a it is an area of concern yeah i've seen that with i think i've seen that with more with powder horns you know because there's a lot of blank powder horns it's easy to find blank powder horns absolutely yeah. there's dirt by the dozens out there yeah. yeah and there's a lot of people doing work yeah. i saw a great one and i had to have other people look at it to make sure that it was you know uh, i had a feeling about it but i had to make confirm that feeling to have someone else right. that knew what they were doing yeah and because it was uh 1748 you know yeah uh it had just a lot going on and, right and right it would have been a yeah. you know I, I mean by and large the the person who's really trained their eye and had a lot of experience and stuff like that mm-hmm. is um is 
almost never going to get fooled. I don't mm-hmm. say never going to get fooled. I'm yeah. going to say almost never gets fooled. But it takes a lot of experience and a lot of exposure to, mm-hmm. to be in that position. And yeah. Now, I've had, uh, because of a blog I wrote about um, a year ago or so, I've had a lot of people contact me through emails and stuff that want to show me their scrimshaw. And I think only about, about five of them, only one was a real tooth. The rest were resin. <laughs> so many people are still thinking those they'll inherit them. I had a woman drive up from New York. Uh, she was driving toward the area anyway, but she brought these scrimshaw teeth to show me, and every single one of them was resin. But if they were real, they'd be very valuable because of the scenes on them were, you know, historical scenes. That, yeah, I mean, they'll show up, and like anybody who's had any exposure at all to yeah. a real scrimshaw tooth or a real tooth, you know, would never be fooled by right. that. But it's uh, almost but, a mile away; you can see it. Yeah, but you know, if someone just picked one up and has never realized, never been exposed to a real tooth, you know, they they get all excited. And I mean, yeah. that's you know, I, I get emails on a daily basis <laughs> and probably, yeah. you know, people having scrimshaw or thinking they have scrimshaw and wanting to sell it or get a value on it. And probably 90% of what comes through my emails yeah. are those plastic pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so they're probably still making them too, are they? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm I know they sure, were in the seventies cause I saw yeah, them around yeah. since then. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they've been around quite a while. And of course that's one of the problems because people start, Oh my, yeah, my grandmother. My, had my, it. Yeah. She had it. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, but your grandmother was alive in 1971 yeah. or two when this all started. And, uh, yeah. so she might've bought it, you know, or someone gave it to her or whatever as mm-hmm. a gift. And, you know, you're just trying to explain to people and some people are just very, difficult to get the point across to they just battle with you you know yeah and you're trying oh, to explain yes. it has no value you know it, yeah. it just doesn't and they go you know and they look at you shady yeah. or they and i go well looks listen if you told me you wanted to give it to me for free yeah i wouldn't take it that's so the that's way out of something yeah like that. i said so yeah. that should tell you that it has no value i'm not yeah. i'm try, trying to cheat you i don't even want it for yeah. free you know yeah. so so uh, but you know that's just the way it goes and then some people are very gracious about it and most of them actually suspect a lot of them suspect it, but yeah. they're just out there, you know, wishful yeah. thinking type situations. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was just, uh, I was in Chicago recently, and someone, it was a dealer, I was working at an appraisal clinic, and a dealer behind everyone raised up a, a resin piece. And I just shook my head like, no, it's, you know, like that. And so afterwards they came up to me and they said, what do you mean no? And I said, that's resin. I could tell from where I was. Right. Seated, and I said, "No, no, I bought this mor- th- that this morning from another dealer." And I said, "Well, if the dealer's still here, get a refund if you paid a lot." Well, I paid one hundred and fifty dollars. I said, "If it was a real tooth, you wouldn't be paying one hundred and fifty dollars for it." Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, he bought a hundred. You know, he paid one hundred and fifty dollars for, for something that's worth five dollars. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, but you know, it's it's it happens every day. You sure. Know, it's yeah. it's part of the problem. Yeah, that's right. That's but, right. Uh, now, has it in any type of way? It, uh, these things affect the value of the real stuff, or no, just not? Not at yeah. all. Not at it's all. Totally apples and oranges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, to the real scrimshaw collector, that stuff is just totally a joke. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's not even close to being, you know, yeah. something that can fool you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the prisoner of war items. Can you explain exactly what those are? Well, those those are 
you know, I guess in a sense, uh, they really aren't scrimshaw at all. Right. They I, were I they were made most of that stuff. It became famous to be known for being made during the uh, Napoleonic Wars when France and uh, Britain were at war mm-hmm. in the uh, you know 1790 era or whatever. Um, and the French were very great ivory workers um, mm. in the 18th century. And um, Napoleon's army was really a conscription army. He took the best of everybody. You could have been the finest ivory carver or the finest anything, and you went. Mm -hmm. So when these guys got captured, you know, they were in these prison camps. They would start taking a lot of the bones and uh, whatnot from the food and uh, creating objects. And since it was a a craft that really didn't compete with anything like lace making or something uh, that the English did, they actually allowed these guys to have a market, you know, a market day or whatever hmm. that was inside, uh, outside the prison walls, but inside the outer walls of the prison. You know, they would allow them to have a, a market and allow the British people to go and actually buy uh, these elaborate bone and ivory objects. That um, mm-hmm. because some of them were, uh, some of the officers were. Um, uh, that were captured, the, the higher ranking people that were captured were, they weren't really always in prison camps. They were called parole prisoners where they actually were just left in a town, um, in a small town where they actually could wander around. And, uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. so they could, uh, they could actually barter for, um, you know, for better product like uh, tortoiseshell or baleen or, mm. you know, different things to make like what you find on a lot of these wonderful, uh, ship models that they made. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know they were they were just very highly skilled people and mm. made some amazing array of items. You cataloged the Lloyd collection many years ago, and can you tell us a little bit about that collection? I actually owned the Lloyd oh, collection. Okay. I bought it from a man named Clive Lloyd, who was from Gomshall, Surrey, uh, in in England, which is south of London, a beautiful area south of London. Mm. And he was a lifelong collector of prisoner of war work. He started buying it in the probably in the 1940s or something. Mm. And I'd amassed a pretty large collection of, uh, I think it was about 230 pieces of it. And there were probably about 30 of the big bone models in there. Mm. And I had gone to see him when I was over there and we talked about it. And he was at a point in his life where he was getting older and he was writing a book on it, which ultimately did get published. It took till after his death to get it published because mm. he, he was like a lot of people who want to write a book. He was always afraid that someone who was going to find something wrong or a mistake he made and, hmm. or he didn't get to the end of where he wanted to get. And, you know, I used to always say to him, you just have to move on and write the book and someone's going to correct it and change it. But that's what, that's what books are. It's hmm. uh, nobody says you have to be perfect with it, you know, <laughs> cause it's going to change new information is going to come to light, you know, and whatnot. But anyway, ultimately, um, so when he was done with what he needed, uh, for the, um, book and all the writings and things he decided to sell and we negotiated a price and I bought the entire collection and brought it over here and then displayed it in a little maritime museum that I had here in Kenny Bunkport for two years and then ultimately mm-hmm. it was sold at auction. Mm-hmm. I made quite a splash when that came up for auction. I remember well, that. it was a pretty impressive grouping of stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. it was nothing else like it. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the items were absolutely the ultimate in prisoner of war work. There were fabulous clock towers and mm. big spinning jennies and, you know, just 
really, really terrific items, you know, mm-hmm. not to mention the ship models and whatnot. Yeah. One of them was almost four feet long. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. And uh, so, you know, it was it was a terrific collection. And, um, you know, there was a fair amount of interest in prisoner of war work back then. Um, mm-hmm. You don't see it around so much anymore, and as a result, I don't see as much interest in it. As, really? Uh, so wow. it's almost, I think, with the models still people just cherish because they're such yeah. gorgeous items. Right, yeah. But... Um, but you don't see it around as much, you know. It's mm. pretty well spread into collections, I guess, and sitting there. Now, do you think that if you sold them in auction in England or Europe, they would have done any better than they did here? I know uh, you brought them here for your museum initially, but... No, I don't think so. I, th- mm-hmm. I think the market was what it was, you know, yeah. and uh, I don't think they would have done any better there. Yeah. Yeah. Today, with the internet, they they may though you never know. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's hard to speculate. Like I say, yeah. there's so little of it out around there that it really hasn't seemed to generate new collectors. Mm-hmm. You know, it, back then there was you know stuff was always resurfacing new items and things like that, yeah. and it seemed to have just dried up. You don't see it in auctions much anymore. You just don't mm-hmm. see it around. You know, so mm-hmm. apparently it's sitting in collections. Yeah. So. Now let's talk a little bit about some other things that. The sailors made while they had all those many hours to fill um, out of like what they used. Let's talk about ivory and specifically. You said boxes. I mean, scrimshaw. Uh, not just scrimshaw, but other things they made. Pie crimpers. There's cane heads. Well, but those are all considered scrimshaw. The uh, the pie crimpers. Yeah, yeah. Even if there's no work. Uh, no, scrimshaw doesn't. Ju- scrimshaw really falls in the category of anything made using you know the product of the whale the bones the teeth the whatnot you know i just learned something (laughs) i always thought scrimshaw was the work of the the ink work no no it's a much broader category it's all the little items and as uh, the newest book calls them contrivances of uh, of um that the whalemen made you know Mm -hmm. like i say they could be um wood boxes inlaid with shells and ivory and whatnot. Um, and you would call that scrimshaw as a general blanket Absolutely, category. yep. So pie crimpers, walking sticks, clock towers, um, mm-hmm. uh, swifts, you know, yarn winders, yeah. uh, um, uh, ditty boxes, uh, sewing baskets, on and on and on. Yeah. It's just an endless uh, fids, you know, tools, um, yeah. endless amount of uh, items that they made. Wow, wow. And it's all considered scrimshaw. And the uh, the swifts you're talking about, some of them are really beautiful. I've well, they're they're, they're just absolutely intricate objects that had to take. Yeah. And I will say, probably some of the most undervalued um, scrimshaw mm-hmm. items there are. I mean, you can still buy a nice swift for under three thousand dollars. And I mean the yeah. work, I mean the workmanship in them to make all those little slats and. And, right. you know, the way it opens up like an umbrella and, open, and, up. and yeah. open up and the clamps and the way they clamped and the little cups on the top. I mean, they're magnificent yeah. objects. They really are. I mean, some of them were crude and simple by people who were less skilled. But by, by and large, it was a very skilled item to make. You know, Now, those are basically for yarn winding? Yarn winding, yeah. yeah. They clamped on a table and mm-hmm. as a, someone was knitting, it was coming, you know, it was spooling around off the... And uh, what are those little cups at the top? Maybe? Just, they call them an accessory cup. You know, mm-hmm. probably had a little pin cushion in it or something oh. up there. Yeah, yeah. Just a, yeah, wow. Yeah, the hours, but they had the hours to kill. Yeah, but yeah. I, I can't even begin to imagine the amount of time it would take to make one of those. Yeah. Now, I see a narwhal tusk, I believe, hanging. Yeah. Now, th- those are 
those are pretty rare in themselves, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, they were cherished things, especially by the, especially more so by the British because of the unicorn kind of as- oh, yeah. aspect of them. So mm-hmm. they were saved as, um, mm-hmm. you know, as souvenirs or curiosities. Um, mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, there's been odd different things that have been made using them, like uh, bedposts and things like Is that. Is that right? Yeah. But Walking sticks? Uh, sometimes they made yeah. them out of what made, but I think they kind of uh, cherished them in a different way, yeah. you know, and kind of left them. But the shafts of walking sticks do show up. Mm-hmm. They're kind of rare, um, mm-hmm. made out of a narwhal tusk. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that there was a symposium at the, is it the Bedford? New Bedford. New Bedford Whaling, Whaling Museum. Museum. Yeah. Yes. So there was a symposium there. And is that open to the public? Uh, well, it's an annual thing that they do, and it's mm-hmm. called a script. Scrimshaw Collectors Weekend, and it's a symposium, mm-hmm. and it is open to the public. You, you know, it's you got to pay a fee. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. but you you know, there's a lot of lectures and things going on. It's a, it's where collectors get to meet and talk and whatnot. Hmm. Um, they you know they do dinner. You know, there's food and things like that. It's probably about three hundred dollars to go to it for the weekend. But you know, you, mm-hmm. that includes meal, a lot of meals and things like that, and uh, and you know all these talks and different. Um, things mm-hmm. that went on, so they have it every year in May. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's great for anyone listening that has an interest or a collector. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the recent goings on in California because it's really making a wave over there. Well, first of all, what do you know about that them cracking down on the law out there? Uh, only what I've heard. There was a little discussion at the symposium about it, but apparently. Um, Fish and Wildlife there decided, or somebody decided, to have Fish and Wildlife um, uh, implement strictly a law, as it's written on the books, that you can't sell any animal parts. You know, you can own them, I guess, but you can't sell them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this has tortoise shells right across the, the line. Right across everything. the board, yeah. I mean, from what I understood, they even went into flea market type things and, and people that were selling, like, just a simple deer mount you know or something took those away wow. even though they're not endangered or anything now i mean now this is all information that i heard and and, mm-hmm. and and was discussed but apparently they went into an auction house who had a bunch of different antique ivory objects that they were about to auction and took those and then they're you know issuing pretty stiff fines and whatnot like that and it just kind of took everybody by surprise you know and um and it's kind of shaken up the uh mm. the, the whole thing you know because you know nobody's been bothering about it you know on the federal level it's okay to have these things um as long as they're you know 100 years old or mm-hmm. or documented to be pre like the 1970s when this whole thing went into play this whole um endangered species thing went into play um so it's confusing a lot of people are confused they're nervous um you know edgy uh so mm-hmm. you know nobody really knows i mean there's people out there that are working on trying to change it because it it has a huge effect on a sure. lot of a lot of like um piano keys yeah the... just a simple act of steinway selling an old antique beautiful old antique piano mm-hmm. i mean legitimately that could be confiscated by fish and wildlife and and uh taken away 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's overreaching. I mean, you know, you can go into a million different things. Uh, you could have a sword handle from of sword from the revolutionary war or the mm. war of 1812. And that's illegal, you know, under this, yeah. um, it could be the handle of, uh, you know, Buffalo Bill's revolver or something. Yeah. And that could be taken. Can you imagine? Um, wow. so it's, it has far reaching consequences. And, um, so, you know, people are going to try to make sense of it and get them to re you know, rethink it, but it's always a big process to change laws, you know, as they're yes. written. So, uh, so there's a lot of edginess out there and, and everywhere as a result, you know, because people are like, well, geez, maybe this can happen where I live, you know, or something. That's and, true. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, people just have, you know, put together nice collections of scrimshaw that are quite valuable and it would be, you know, devastating to not only lose, you know, something that's a passion that you have, but, mm -hmm. but to lose the value of them as well, you know, so it's, um, you know, people are a little on edge. Now, I know there was a auction company that I followed in, in um, California. I actually call it California Auctioneers or something like that. They had about four or five scrimshaw teeth, and they they had them already advertised before all this thing came down, and they actually pulled them from the auction. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Everybody's on edge. I think anybody yeah. that was dealing in antique you know, scrimshaw or ivory objects or objects. Asian with ivory. Lots of Asian yeah. ivory in California. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there is. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, just anybody who has anything with ivory on it, regardless of its, you know, age, you know, if, if, if anybody that's dealing in it, I'm sure it's just taking it off the shelves because they don't want to lose it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, what, what's going to happen, but it's, uh, it's, people are working on it, but yeah. uh, it's never easy to change things once they get entrenched in law. Mm -hmm. I look at like scrimshaw teeth, for instance, getting back to that, as like a finite number of them out there, unless, and, and they've been collectible for so long. It must be really difficult to actually get them in any type of quantity at all these days. Well, it's like anything, you know, um, um, things keep coming back on the market for an endless array of reasons, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, people pass away, um, uh, divorce settlement issues, uh, change of interests, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and collecting interests, um, people just getting older, um, yeah. whatever, you know, yeah. so there's a, so it keeps recirculating, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, who are your buyers? Um, uh, who, who do I sell yeah. to? Mm -hmm. Um, just, you know, it could, could be anybody, but mostly people, you know, obviously that have a true and genuine interest in, in the whaling and, um, mm -hmm. and antique scrimshaw. Is it mostly people that, well, let me say this. Do you get new people into the market? Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. New people come in, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, people leave, you know, uh, but, yeah. uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of young, young people, uh, but you're not seeing that anywhere in the antique trade. That's right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's of concern. Was, Another it, subject I bring up all the time. Yeah. yeah. Who, who are going to be the, you know, it seems very different than when I first started, yeah, you know, this is. Uh, be, yeah. I'm being a baby boomer, you know, there were so many young people that were, mm -hmm. you know, very interested in antiquities and yeah. when they furnished their house or their apartment or something, they'd go buy an old chest of drawers and stuff, but tastes have changed and um i just don't know uh what it just doesn't seem that a lot of younger people are very interested yeah that's you know, we're seeing so. that across the board basically right. yeah. yeah now you spend half the time here and half the time in delray beach yeah i live down in florida about uh, mm -hmm. seven months of the year and up here about five now are there other collectors in in florida as well i'm sure there are i mean you know there's yeah. some you know uh, they're everywhere you never know where yeah. one's going to pop up but, but you do, do you do a lot of business online? 
or uh, ca- your catalog. Let's talk about that. Uh, I put a catalog out periodically, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I mail a hard copy, but I also simultaneously put it on my website. Um, mm-hmm. So, And your website address, why don't we just throw that out? Uh, com. John Rinaldi Nautical. That'll be linked below this yeah. podcast. Okay. Yeah. So you just mentioned a few minutes ago that there's less young people getting involved. Do you feel as though there'll always be a market for what you do? I think there will be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of history and there's always going to be people, uh, especially people that live in these coastal areas, you know, that they'll get fascinated mm-hmm. with the history of the sea and shipbuilding or whaling. You know, you'll always have a contingent of people from Nant- Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod where, mm-hmm. where um, you know, all this whaling, you know, was, was uh, a way of life back right. in the 19th century. And I think there's always going to be people there that'll keep it going. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I, I, I think it'll always perpetuate itself, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and, you know, the other part of it is, is there's, it's scarce stuff. I mean, there's not right. a lot of, you know, all, all aspects of good quality marine antiques, whether it be figureheads, uh, uh, ship mm-hmm. paintings, um, you know, any of these types of things, early instruments, um, it's scarce. It's very hard to find. Yeah. And so it doesn't need a huge audience to perpetuate itself. Right. You know, right. Um, you know, now I'm not talking about what I call to be more decorative marine items like, you know, World War II type, you know, binnacles and ship lights and stuff that I call more or less decorative or restaurant items, you know, <laughs> but they're, you know, mm-hmm. they're fine. They're quality. Yeah. They're real. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they don't really fall into the collectible aspect of things. And, uh, you know, so that market probably changes, especially since restaurants don't seem to decorate that way anymore. Yeah. That that kind of came and went in the 70s and yeah. early 80s. Um, but, you know, I think the fine collectible aspect of it, I, I think the market will always manage to perpetuate itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't think people start younger now. I think instead yeah. of starting in their 20s, you know, they tend to seem to start in their late 40s, mid or late 40s. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, I think one of the other problems is, too, is a lot of times people get overwhelmed by pricing. Yeah. And what happens is, is you know, what do you read in the papers? The antique publications, the they, talk, they talk about the, t- the records all yeah. the time. And people go, well, how the heck am away. I ever going to collect Scrimshaw if, if it yeah. costs $150,000? Well, you can buy a, a really nice Scrimshaw tooth for 1500 or 1200 you yeah. know, if you shop around hard enough, or yeah. 2000 or, you know, plenty of stuff under 5000 for really nice ones. And But, mm-hmm. you know, may, yeah, you're not going to buy the ultimate prize but you don't really have to to have a good collection, you know. Yeah. And there's so many other little wonderful objects they made that that are very affordable. Um, they're not cheap, but they're they're affordable. Yeah. But so I think you know the a lot of times the um, reporting is doing more harm than yeah. good because it's just scaring people away. Right. You know, right. So. And I really appreciate you bringing that up because uh, one of the one of the final questions I was going to ask you is along the lines of if someone was just starting to get interested. Where would be a good place to start? Well, I mean, it depends what you're getting interested in. If you want to say getting interested in scrimshaw, I mean, I think one of the one of the first things you might want to do is is um, get exposure. So you want to get to the museums. You know, there's mm-hmm. New Bedford Whaling Museum is fabulous, and they've got an amazing exhibition going on right now where they've really got 
thousands of pieces out on exhibit wow. of, of scrimshaw hmm. for the first time they've ever had that much out um you know the mystic uh, seaport museum mm-hmm. and you know the go to the go to them and just see you know see things you know seeing yeah. is learning right and um then you know gets a few of the books the new book that just came out by Stuart frank and get a hold of one of the flaterman books and um mm-hmm. And just look through them, you know, yeah. and again, exposure. And uh, and then if you decide to start to buy, you know, I'm not here self-promoting my business, but you're much better to start with a good, reputable, reputable reliable person. Absolutely. Um, you're not going to uh, steal an item from that person because they know what's going on. But the other side mm-hmm. of it is, is really good longstanding uh, dealers who have done it a long time tend to not overprice things either. Mm-hmm. So you're going to pay what it's basically worth. Yeah. But the best thing is is you're going to get something that is what it's meant to be or what it's right. sold as, a legitimate... I mean, frankly, I I fully guarantee everything I sell, yeah. you know, uh, 100% uh, to be authentic. And um, so, you know, you really need to not try to beat the system until you, you know, right. get your exposure, learn, get things in your hands... Uh, eventually, you know, you'll get good enough at it that you'll be able to make decisions on your own. But so many times I see people try to do it on their own mm-hmm. and they end up with a horrible mess yeah. that they can't get rid of and if just a bunch of money thrown away. Yeah. If it's yeah. too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Yeah. You know, like I say, you know, eventually, you know, you'll you'll learn and you'll be able to make decisions on your own. But in the yeah. meantime, it's really best to kind of be around, you know, reputable people who mm-hmm. have been around it a long time have a lot of experience and um yeah and uh, go from there you know yeah. and i think you'll find the best collections that are ever formed in any field are formed with the help and guidance of really good collectors and other good collectors or dealers you mm-hmm. know uh, in, involved with it now it's, the one last thing i wanted to ask you I, I see sort of a movement where a lot of people are taking their money and putting it into the real best of every market it seems like whether it's paintings or just recently a uh, stoneware jug went for $400,000. But it was the very, you know, it was a crazy piece. It was like the top of the line. There's is that no, the same? Yeah, there's no question that the very best is doing very, very well. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the people that are buying strongly are people that, you know, have the resources to buy things and, and they really only want, you know, uh, the very best. Mm-hmm. But... You know, um, again, it's not absolutely imperative that you have those kind of items to have a nice scrimshaw collection. Right. I mean, you right. can have, there's so many, as long as it's good, authentic stuff of neat, of decent quality and condition, mm-hmm. it's fine to have, you know, other, because it's rare stuff. It's yeah. scarce, you know, and That's if you're going to sit there and wait for the, you know, eighty or $90,000 piece, you know, you're not going to have much of a scrimshaw collection and, uh, yeah. And uh, I, I don't recommend going that route. You know, I mean, yeah, when it comes up, those that can afford it can do it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think, no, I'm not saying go out and buy a bunch of, you know, $20 bodkins and say you have a scrimshaw collection <laughs> because then, you know, but they're... Those if you are hunt, $20 items. Yeah, yeah. If you hunt around, you can um, you can find nice things and put together a nice, diverse collection of scrimshaw that'll mm-hmm. be always worth you know, having, you know, as yeah. long as it's chosen properly. Yeah. And one more thing, you actually buy collections as well if someone's out there. That Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you know, someone... one piece or a whole collection. I mean, it's like the Lloyd collection. That was over 200 pieces. One time I bought a collection of 
90 uh, pie crimpers, all scrimshaw wow. pie crimpers that had been in a um, bank vault since uh, uh, 1927 or something wow. like that. Wow. So that was quite a fun. That was and, exciting. I yeah. Bet. But no, I've bought several, you know, large collections over the uh, over the years. And then, mm-hmm. you know, but mostly it's onesies and twosies, you know, a piece yeah. here and a piece there, trading this, trading that, you know, and that's normally how you accumulate stuff. Right, right. Well, it's been great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah. So this is Martin Willis with John Rinaldi, and we're signing off. <laughs>